the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Hi, it's Jason Reed. Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. This week, I'm joined with my co-hosts, Lee Johnson and Rick Lee, and we're going to be talking about the history of philosophy. Before we get into that, let's get everyone's drink order and their rants or raves. So, Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? I think today I'm just going to have a dirty martini and I'm raving about dad jokes. So the other day I was at a family gathering and somehow we got into this dad joke off and they're so bad. They're really so bad, but so much fun. And I do want to share with you guys my new favorite dad joke, which is what is brown and sticky? I don't know. I don't know. A stick. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it's just too easy. Nice. Uh, Rick, so what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? So today I'm going to go back to a classic cocktail, the South Side. I love me some gin, you all know, and so South Side is a gin-forward cocktail. Today I am raving as well, and I'm raving about the philosopher Nicholas of Cusa. I'm teaching a seminar in medieval and renaissance philosophy, and I decided to do it on the topic of reason and its others. And my God, Nicholas of Cusa is both incredibly difficult and wicked, wicked smart. So Nicholas of Cusa, shout out to you. (laughs) He was a gen forward philosopher. (laughs) He he probably was. Well, (laughs) yeah, beer forward, maybe. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to have a main beer company, local brewery, their farmhouse. I haven't been there since the COVID, but they have a great spot up in Freeport where they give you as many big, giant pretzels as you want. They don't stop. Mm. I've tested them on this. They do not stop coming. <laughs> Jason, I, I love that you've now become an old man and you call it the COVID. <laughs> the COVID. <laughs> While he's eating the pretzels. The pretzels. <laughs> So I'm going to rant about the slow creep of Christmas. Every year I feel it creeps up earlier and earlier and the watershed of Thanksgiving has been crossed a long time ago. And I feel we're getting to the point where we're going to go straight from Halloween into Christmas, and I'm just not ready for that. Yeah. So uh, it's the slow creep of Christmas. I can feel it. I sense it. And I'm not ready for it. We are talking about the history of philosophy this week. So, uh, Rick, what about the history of philosophy? So I'm a big fan of the website The Daily News. And Justin, the editor of that, was a former guest on our show. And he posted a link to an essay by a philosopher, Hanno Sauer, that was arguing against the importance of the history of philosophy, both for philosophy and in general. And he makes this argument because he gives a positivistic and a kind of scientistic model of philosophy, you know, so that physics and biology and chemistry, they've made some progress. Like we know more about how the orbits of the planets work and so on. They've made progress in all sorts of ways. And yet 
he wants to say philosophy has also made progress. We've solved some problems. We're no longer struggling with the same issues that Thales struggled with way back in the beginning. And I think if you look at the model of the sciences, you would say the history of philosophy is not important. No one in Bio 101 is struggling with Aristotle's biology or Linnaeus or Mendel. Um, in chemistry, they're not teaching you the history of alchemy or the theory of phlogiston or even ether. And like in physics, they're not teaching you in Physics 101 Aristotle's theory about why bodies seem to fall or the medieval notion of impetus. And so the question is, is Sauer right that philosophy has similarly progressed? And if so, then he must be right that philosophy should leave its history really just to the historians. Or if he's wrong, then is there something philosophically relevant about the history of philosophy? Now, even if we leave Sauer behind, we can add that the history of philosophy is a history both of dead white guys, and it's also a history of the victors. So if the history of philosophy is ethnocentric and therefore racist, if it's phallocentric and therefore patriarchal, why should philosophy continue to engage it? interested in each of your pedagogical practice. When you're teaching, do you teach texts from the history of philosophy? And I'm particularly interested in whether you bring in texts from the history of philosophy in courses that are not directed at the history of philosophy. So, Lee, let me start with you. How do you engage, if at all, the history of philosophy? Well, I should probably start off by saying that most of the courses I teach are in moral and political philosophy or philosophy of technology or philosophy of film. So I don't teach the history courses, right. you know, the periods very often. But with that said, I always teach my courses historically. Mm. Um, so yeah, in every single course, we begin with the ancient philosophers and work our way up to the contemporary period. I would maybe say that the one exception to that is in my philosophy of technology class. But even there, I'll still have a few people from the ancient world or the modern world. But we spend a lot more time, obviously, with contemporary thinkers. And I'm not sure if this is just because that's how I was trained. But I think for me, partially, it's because it's important to understand the development of debates. You know, maybe this is where I disagree with Sauer, is that I'm not so positive that we've figured things out. <laughs> and, you know, that, we, that we've just like made so much progress that we can just leave things behind. I do think that there is a through line from questions that were asked in the ancient period to now and that haven't been answered and that maybe we've made some progress on, but I don't think that progress can be understood without understanding the history. Hmm. Jason, what about you? Yeah, I teach the history of philosophy even in courses that are organized around topics like my politics of work class or even political philosophy. And part of the reason I do this is really reflects two ideas I have about the history of philosophy or what I'm doing when I teach history of philosophy, I think one thing I'm doing is trying to show how certain ideas held by certain philosophers have become 
more or less common sense in our culture, like mm-hmm. certain ideas about work, the connection between work and property, but also the connection uh, which you find in like Hegel, for example, of the idea that work makes us, forms us, is morally formative. That a person without work doesn't have the necessary self-respect and sort of social mm. dimension to stand in society. So partly what I do on teaching philosophy is to unpack and say, here's some things we already think and here's how we've come to think them. But the other thing, and this is ties in with what Lee was saying, I think, is that there are also, I think, paths not taken in the history of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And this is where I differ very much from the positivistic sort of idea of like we figured some things out. We've also maybe – we've maybe let some ideas go by the wayside that are worth reconsidering. You know, in the case of the work example, that would be ideas about alienation and exploitation that maybe aren't as much a part of, although I think they do still play a role in popular culture and our popular sensibility around work, but their articulation is not part of the official discourse around the way work is talked about. So it's that dual task of both figuring out how we got where we are, and it's also figuring out that there are other possibilities because, as you were saying, there are winners and losers even in the history of philosophy, and sometimes mm-hmm. the losers had some really good points. Mm. <laughs> what about you, Rick? I mean, you're our resident historian. I'm assuming that you teach the history of philosophy in all of your courses. Yeah, so I am an historian of philosophy for sure, and my specialty is medieval philosophy, which I noticed both of you flew right over the Middle <laughs> Ages, just right from antiquity to Descartes. As if there's nothing happened over there. Guilty. (laughs) So probably for that reason, it's unsurprising that in all of my classes, I teach the history of philosophy. I have to say that I have taken lately in my, let's say, intro class to teaching figures from the history of philosophy, but not in historical sequence. Mm -hmm. So in my intro class that I'm teaching right now... We started with Plato's Apology, and then the very next text we read was by Hannah Arendt. Then after Hannah Arendt, we read Thomas Aquinas, then Enrique Dussel. Right now, we're reading Edmund Husserl's Crisis, but we're going to end the class with Aristotle. And Hmm. one of the reasons I do that, and I never thought about this, Jason, until you said it, but I think I do want to make some of these ideas more current, make the concepts and arguments that otherwise we might say, oh, in the olden days, people used to think this nonsense, and now we are so much smarter. I want to bring Aristotle into conversation with Cornell West, and I want to bring you know, Hannah Arendt into conversation with Thomas Aquinas as if they're all living. I really worry about the history of philosophy being taught either like it's a museum or even worse, <laughs> like it's a zoo. You know, so if you think about what the experience is in a zoo, you go and you look and you're like, oh my God, aren't those animals cute in their own habitat? And it's so fun to stand here and look at each of them, but it never matters, right? It never really impacts us. And so I try to find ways to make the history of philosophy much more living. And I think for both of the reasons you each pointed out, I like to trace the development of ideas. I like to see how they're interconnected. And 
Maybe there's a model of progress there. I'm not sure. But I also like the point Jason raised. And this is a point I think the philosopher Edith Dobbs Weinstein makes often that some aspects of the history of philosophy have been occluded. It's not just that they've been left behind, but they have been actively pushed behind, pushed out of sight, pushed out of mind. And I like to think about what does the history of philosophy look like without those occlusions? If I could just return to this presupposition that we've actually solved problems, (laughs) which, again, I find suspicious. I think it's really important also that some of the bad ideas get studied as well. You know, Mm. some of the things that we think that we've already solved. And you mentioned at the top of the episode that in biology classes or chemistry classes or physics classes, you know, we're not learning about like the ethers or alchemy (laughs) or things like this anymore. But I think it is important to go back and actually understand the arguments of, for example, race realism. Mm. Because if you don't understand how that argument was made, in the first place and how it became so entrenched in our culture and society globally, then when it rears its ugly head again, if your answer is simply, oh, we already solved that problem of race realism, (laughs) then it seems to me that you are woefully ill-prepared to live in the world that you're actually in. In addition to that, if you think about, let's say, Kant's anthropology, maybe it's not the origins, but there is a philosophical embrace, I'll say, of a kind of version of race realism. And if Mm -hmm. we accept too quickly that progress has been made and so we don't have to keep going back, I think what we miss is how that progress itself was actually built on the back of an argument about race realism. Yeah. And without the history, you can't untangle those things, right? I mean, you can't untangle the rise of race realism as contemporaneous with the rise of science, with the mm-hmm. rise of democracy and the nation state and worldwide commerce, like all of those things are so tangled together. And all of the arguments forwarding or opposing all of those things are so tangled together. And you just can't understand that without going back through and, you know, reading even the bad ideas. <laughs> right. And the other thing that we can't do in philosophy, and I think it's because we can't do this in the broader world, is if someone comes into a science class and wants us to talk about like spontaneous generation, right? It's very easy to say, (laughs) we don't believe – that's been disproven, you know, shut up. But if someone comes into a philosophical discussion or even a political discussion and wants to say – talk about like – to use the race realism example, the fundamental biological difference between the races, you can't just say to them, that's been disproven. You have to actively disprove prove it. You have to actively yeah. engage it. Because there isn't a guaranteed progress in society, philosophy cannot assume a model of progress borrowed from the sciences mm. in which some ideas are just gone and dead and done with because those ideas keep coming back. There's a great like Adorno line where he talks about how like it's so frustrating that a philosopher engaged in political debates has to constantly go back and defeat the same bad ideas that have been defeated before. <laughs> but that's yeah. that's the yeah. job. That's the right. job, Teddy. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, serious question though, what are the questions that we've solved? 
Yeah. They just one. So <laughs> just one. Sauer points to things that I don't think we've actually solved. He points to issues like, you know, we have a better account of knowledge than, for example, Plato did. We have a better account of the mind than, for example, Descartes did. Do we? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so clearly to say that we have a better account presupposes that you affirm as true a position that, for example, the three of us probably would argue against. And so when Sauer says that progress has been made, there's an assumption about positions that I think is not at that point a philosophical assumption. I think it's something like a belief and bordering on a religious belief. Yeah, I mean, this, this seems like a kind of sneaky move, but I don't see how you can say something like progress has been made without acknowledging the importance of the history of an idea. Right. But, you know, so I mentioned Husserl's crisis because I'm teaching it in my Philosophy 100, and it's the text we happen to be on right now. And one of the arguments he makes in that text, which I find really fascinating, is that the problem confronting philosophy is precisely the fact that sciences have become more and more positivistic. And by that, he means they are only interested in questions of mere fact. Mm -hmm. And he has this great line, fact-minded sciences make fact-minded people. Mm -hmm. In the movement toward positivism in all the sciences, and I think we could argue that a huge chunk of philosophy today has moved in a positivist direction. Mm -hmm. That is, looking for what factually is the case and basing philosophical argumentation and demonstration on what is factually the case and therefore verifiable, that this turns us into fact-minded people who are no longer therefore able to think about values and norms mm -hmm. and Husserl goes even further, the connection of knowledge to the meaning of human existence. Yeah, right. yeah. It seems to me that in the very idea about progress is an assumption that we're reducing philosophical texts to factual or declarative statements in them, right? I mean, part of the reason we reread Plato or Duns Scotus Throwing a medieval for you there, and other uh, writers is not just because they lay out some propositions about I think X or X is whatever, but that they have a mode of writing and engaging in a mode of thinking that may also be of interest. I mean, part of the history of philosophy is that over time, different elements of different philosophies rise in importance. Right? Sometimes people are very interested in a particular argument. But then as time moves on, people are like, oh, they're more interested in other aspects so that these philosophers, because they write, they make more than just a set of claims. They also construct a way of thinking about the world. And there's a kind of richness to this that a reduction to the claims to a fact-minded way of thinking about things is always going to miss. There's more to Descartes than, you know, mind-body dualism. Right. There's also what he's wearing in his dressing gown. And uh, <laughs> and, th and thinking animals are robots and other weird stuff. You know, in the first season of this podcast, we did an episode on the philosophical canon. And one of the things that kind of came out in that conversation was how the change in the nature of the university has itself pushed 
let's say, the humanities to model themselves more on the hard sciences, to be more positivistic. And at one point, you know, universities were basically just finishing schools, right, for the mm-hmm. propertied and wealthy. And now, 2022, they're practically votex schools, right? So mm-hmm. the role of the university is not to create a good moral agent and a good citizen. The role of the university is to create a utile worker. And so in that sense, the fact that even the least utilitarian of the, I mean, I, maybe this is not fair, but I think philosophy is not really meant to be so utilitarian, but the least utilitarian of our disciplines now suddenly feels a necessity to prove that it's making progress, that it has solved certain problems and that it can therefore do away with its history and send out people who have the right answers, the right facts. On that point, Lee, earlier you said that the argument that there has been progress or that another way to put it maybe without progress is that there are settled issues in philosophy. You made the point that you can't make that claim without an understanding of the history of philosophy. Mm-hmm. The other side of that is that the history of philosophy provides a number of models for thinking through some issues that we are still trying to think through. And so you just raised this question of the utility of philosophy and what does philosophy look like when it's put into a kind of vocational setting, a setting in which the main question is, what are you going to do with that? I think going back to the history of philosophy, actually helps us think about what's the problem with that question in the first place and what could philosophy's role be in struggling against the Votech context in which now even philosophy is forced to practice. Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Now back to the conversation. Sarik, one of the things that you mentioned rightly, I think, at the top of the episode was that the history of philosophy is ethnocentric, racist, patriarchal. And as Derrida once said, you know, very few people in the history of philosophy have been on the side of democracy. So it's pretty (laughs) anti-democratic as well. So how do we take up the history of philosophy acknowledge that it is white, male, heterosexual, cis, able person-centered, and still value it. This is something I struggle with a lot, because I think there's an easy way to answer only partially this question, and that is there is something important about showing the Eurocentrism, the racism, the patriarchy of the history of philosophy. But as we were talking about earlier, it's important to show that, for example, one's metaphysics might actually be built on the back of a racist dynamic. One's epistemology might be built on a sexist structuring of the world or a patriarchal structuring of the world. And I think that if we don't engage the history of philosophy 
with its being structured in all of these ways, it might be really easy for us to not see the way in which racism is not just something that has to do with whether Harvard or the University of North Carolina can engage in affirmative action programs, but actually is more widespread in the ways we think or even in things that go without saying. The history of philosophy, you know, what is it? Is it an attempt to document what has been thought or is it itself a thing that exists in the present through the canonization and reteaching of certain figures, right? Because one of the things that I'm often torn about is when I teach actual history of philosophy classes, which I do sometimes, I do try to diversify those classes and include like Elizabeth of Bohemia as well as Descartes. But the other thing that I'm always torn about is that if you wanted to read, say, for example, stick to the gender point, like someone like Simone de Beauvoir or Judith Butler, they assume you know Descartes' argument. Or another example, like Fanon assumes you know Hegel. Like to engage mm-hmm. in some of the work that's happening closer to the present that is anti-patriarchal or anti-colonial, the odd thing is sometimes you need to cover the kind of generic Eurocentric version of the canon because it's the canon that those figures knew and were struggling against as well, right? So there's a certain way in which you have to know the major figures in philosophy to also know the major attempts to undo the influence of those major figures. You mentioned a number of figures, de Beauvoir, Judith Butler, Fanon. It's not merely that they're struggling against Hegel or Descartes, but they also find important moves made, important philosophical tools and important resources in those figures, without which they could not be producing the thought they're thinking. I can't imagine Judith Butler without Hegel, just as an example. Sure, she's in many ways an anti-Hegelian or thinking against the grain of Hegel or whatever, but she certainly picks up an awful lot of resources from Hegel and other figures in the history of philosophy And so while she's struggling against that canon, she's also using the tools that the canon provides. Your point, Jason, also really distinguishes between the capital T, the history of philosophy, which is Mm. the canon, right? right? Which is white, which is male, which is patriarchal and colonialist and all of those things. And then the history of philosophy, Mm -hmm. which could include a lot of figures that the capital T history of philosophy, the canon has left out. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably a lot of us, or at least I hope that a lot of us who are trying to be conscientious about this do in our classes is that we go back and we try to do exactly as Jason said, find non-canonical historical figures that can enrich really those conversations and show that despite what it might look like from a glance at the canon, black people and women and queer people have actually been thinking important things about meaning and value for a long time as well and often had those things stolen right out from under them by the guys that are in the canon. Mm -hmm. I've been really influenced in this direction by the philosopher Christia Mercer, who is a Leibniz scholar, but has been working for the past several years on bringing contributions that women made in the early modern period into our discussions about male early modern philosophers that we're more accustomed to reading. 
And one of the things she keeps pointing out is we need to focus on how it is that the history of philosophy gets written. For example, Descartes did not occlude Elizabeth of Bohemia or Christina of Sweden, for that matter. Leibniz did not occlude Anne Conway. In fact, Leibniz called Anne Conway the greatest philosopher England has ever produced. Mm. So what Christia Mercer wants to uncover is how was it that then the next step in the history of philosophy wrote those women out of the modern period? How is it that when you take, and I have like probably six different versions of anthologies and medieval philosophy, you will not find a text by a single woman in any of those anthologies. And one of the points Christia Mercer makes is that we seem to make neutral decisions about genre. So we don't treat mystics in philosophy. We don't treat letters as authoritative texts in philosophy. And those seem like neutral genre decisions, but they're actually gender decisions. So in not treating mysticism in philosophy, we will not treat any woman who was a thinker in the Middle Ages. In excluding letters from consideration as non-authoritative texts, we are excluding the contributions of women by and large in early modern philosophy. And I find that argument incredibly compelling. Yeah. At the same time, I do think it's important, though, for those absences to be glaring absences Mm. for students, for example. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is to say, like, look, these people were talking to each other. They were not talking to you. (laughs) They were not, you know, they were not thinking about you. They were not talking to me and they were not thinking about me. So if the questions that they ask seem curious, you know, I remember Charles Mills saying this in a lecture one time. It's like only a white man could possibly ask himself the question, does the world outside of me exist? Right? <laughs> right. Like, you know, the women and slaves and you know, nobody else would ask themselves that question. And so I do think it's important sometimes to say I'm not going to try to pretend like these weren't the dominant debates of the day and that the people who were not included with them, I want them to be visibly invisible. And I think by making that invisibility visible, you sometimes show that those philosophers in making women invisible, in making people of color invisible, in making queer folk invisible, and so on, that they're often going against the grain of their very own thinking. Oh, yeah. That a philosopher who's interested in freedom, like, let's say, Kant, ought not to say the things that he in fact says about South Sea Islanders or people Mm -hmm. from the continent of Africa. And so I think sometimes letting those glaring absences shout in their absences helps us to take that philosopher more seriously than I think sometimes they take themselves. It also points out where we've gone wrong before and continue to keep going wrong. I mean, Rick mentioned that he has several anthologies on his shelf from the medieval period that don't have women authors. But you know what? Most of your anthologies that came out last year don't have women authors, (laughs) right? Most of the anthologies that will come out next year won't have women authors. And if we don't understand that this is not a new thing, right, that there's a whole ideology about what counts as philosophy, who counts as a philosopher, what counts as serious work, what counts as worthy of compiling and maybe entering the canon one day. All of that has deep patriarchal, racist prejudices behind those selections. Then, you know, we're just going to keep making the same mistakes. That to me is the biggest thing about the importance of the history of philosophy. Like, 
I don't think we've made a lot of progress. I'm not sure we've answered any questions, <laughs> but we could sure at the very least stop making the same mistakes. You know? <laughs> and that's not not progress. <laughs> that is not not progress. <laughs> Although speaking of mistakes, I think one of the mistakes that I worry about a lot in terms of history of philosophy is the representation of history as just being a conversation, a series of talking heads in mm. which mm. it's only the ideas of other philosophers that influence philosophers, that there are no events, whether they be political or other, that have helped shape philosophical thinking. I mean, take you know Marx, you talk about Hegel, you talk about Feuerbach, but it's equally important to talk about 1848 in Germany, 1871 in Paris, in the Paris Commune, because I think right. it's important to move away from a very idealist history in which it's only ideas that drive history, that things happen, and that changes how people think as well. We can reincorporate some people who have been excluded, you know, like Anne Conway and so on. But at the end of the day, there are people who are just irretrievably lost, right? People yes. whose words yeah. mm -hmm. were never written because they didn't write or they weren't seen as worth preserving. People whose thoughts are just gone. I think one way to both keep the absences there, but also to some extent acknowledge them is to situate the history of philosophy within history more. Mm. You know, we might not know the thoughts of everyone who participated in the Paris Commune, but that the Paris Commune took place did shape and change as Marx's thought about revolution and its possibilities. Every philosopher was reacting not just to what other people had written, but to what was going on around them. And by acknowledging what's going around them, we can get to the lives that were not written to some extent. I think this is a really important point, Jason. And I really like your emphasis that we have a less idealist, more materialist account of the history of philosophy. But I would just add to that, it's not just historical events that we need to be reminded of, that these philosophers weren't just talking heads, engaging only with each other's ideas. They were also in bodies, right? Mm -hmm. they, that with real lives. I mean, nobody could write like Nietzsche unless they were sick a lot, <laughs> unless they were in pain, like actual physical pain. A lot. And that's important. And their relationships and their economic status. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody could write like Locke unless they were filthy rich. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's just, you know, we just have to get back to exactly as you said, a more materialist account. And I think that that actually makes the absences more noticeable, more visible, and explains why they're absences. But here I have to get partisan because I think what drives Sauer's argument against the history of philosophy is his own training. And mm. Lee, earlier you pointed to the fact that you teach history of philosophy maybe because of your own training. But mm -hmm. I mean, let me just be blunt. I think that analytic philosophy treats all philosophical texts as if they are merely vehicles for arguments. Mm -hmm. And so then I can take up the arguments, I could judge their validity or invalidity, and then I just walk away with their conclusions. Descartes is a mind-body dualist. Hegel mm -hmm. is an absolute idealist, and so on and so forth. One of the things I like about the way in which I was trained, so in the continental European tradition, 
is that I was trained to actually read texts <laughs> and read them not merely as vehicles for arguments, but also as texts. Now, you're all thinking, what the hell does this have to do with what we were talking about before? Well, <laughs> Jason already mentioned that in Descartes' meditations, he says, I'm sitting here in my room by the fire in my dressing gown. And then, you know, a few moments later, or maybe it's the next day, I'm not sure, he talks about looking out the window and seeing people <laughs> going about their daily lives. And he doesn't know if it's people or if they're just hats and coats walking by. Yes, but <laughs> Lee, this goes to your earlier point. The dude is embodied right. in the yeah. meditations. And not yeah. only is he embodied, and I think this goes to what was between your point and Jason's point, he's embodied in a certain class He's embodied in a certain social position. He's embodied as male. And all of that, he goes out of his way to make present in a text, mm -hmm. the argument of which is to make that absent. <laughs> right, right. And mm -hmm. so there's a way in which if we're more careful readers of the history of philosophy, we can come to see not just historical events, but what we might call the historical context. Mm -hmm. What would it be like for someone who is an aristocrat in, I don't know, 16th century England to write philosophy? Mm -hmm. What is it like for someone who is a mercenary soldier in 17th century France to write philosophy? And I think if we're more attentive readers, we can begin to bring those voices that have never been heard into our very doing of the history of philosophy in this incredibly materialist way. Texts are material things. Right. Just to stick to the Descartes point again, because he also says, I think this is the discourse on method, he praises city life and he praises it because he says, you know, I can get whatever I need, but no one knows me. He right. likes both the fact that it has all of the necessities and there's an anonymity to it. So in a weird way, Descartes offers his own socio-historical genesis of the cogito. Like you can only see yourself as an absolute separate human being given, I mean, this is Marx's line in the Grandissa where he says, it's only in a highly developed society do we see ourselves as having nothing to do with each other because we can occlude our own social dependence because it comes to us in the form of commodities, not the form of social relations. So Descartes weirdly gives us a socio-historical genesis of the cogito as being part of a creation of early urban life, which allows you to see yourself as a mind separate from your body because your body's so well taken care of by your material conditions. Yeah. yeah. See, and there, it's, I then want to say to people like Sauer, like, why the history of philosophy? Because it's really fucking interesting. <laughs> Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink.
So, Rick, you brought up the different types of training and philosophy, analytic versus continental. And I want to not so much push back about that, but be self-critical about it. Because there was a remark that someone said to me a while ago that haunts me to this day. And they basically said that continental philosophers are to doing philosophy what art historians are to making art. That we all <laughs> find our person, you know, Heidegger, Deleuze, whomever – we talk about who influenced them and how they impact things the same way that an art historian would talk about like a Monet or something like that. Basically, the person was trying to make the argument that to some extent, history of philosophy can stand in the way of doing philosophy. We become specialists in a person. We know the intricacies of their thought. We know how they were influenced. We know who they influence. We probably usually know why they should be seen as winning out the arguments they actually lost, right? It's like they actually should have defeated anyone who actually claimed against them. So this is going back to, as you said in the opening, not wanting to have history philosophy be a zoo in a museum. And I do feel like there's a tendency within Continental to sometimes become curators of the museum. Like, welcome to the Museum of Spinoza. Here, I will show you everything Spinoza thought in its glistering glory, and I will explain but, to you why it's so important. Stay five feet from the cage, please. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Don't feed the Spinoza. <laughs> Do not feed the Spinoza. <laughs> And so I guess I'm wondering, both of you, because we're all trained in this way, how do we resist the tendency to become curators and not practitioners? I'm not sure that I would describe, for example, a Spinoza specialist as a historian of philosophy. I think mm -hmm. that there are a lot of those kinds of people in continental philosophy that have picked a figure, focused on that figure somewhat obsessively. What I think is a temptation that's very hard to resist when you're actually a historian of philosophy. So when I say a historian of philosophy, I mean people who really focus on periods, ancient mm. philosophers, medieval philosophers, modern philosophers, whatever. I think that it's very difficult to resist the temptation to have a narrative about that period. And it's usually a narrative that involves some kind of progress. Mm -hmm. And that gets in the way of, as you say, being a practitioner of philosophy anymore, because you have the story, mm -hmm. your story of the ancient period, of what happened in the modern period, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That's something that I personally also really struggle with. I mean, I think I have a kind of narrative I tell about how we got from the ancient period through the Middle Ages with a brief stop in the Renaissance and then mm -hmm. straight into the <laughs> modern period and then the 19th century and then the long 19th century and then the 20th century and then the long 20th century. You know, I have a story that I tell about those. And a lot of that is just because it's helpful pedagogically, because mm -hmm. storytelling is a very good way to teach, but it becomes intoxicating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it is easy to get high on your own supply as a historian <laughs> of philosophy. I think that's true. And I, too, would separate – well, actually, now this, this is really interesting to me because it seems one could be influenced by Spinoza in the sense that you could open the ethics and you're reading along and you think, oh, my God – this changes the way I think about power relations, mm -hmm. or this changes the way in which I think about the relationship between imagination and mere images and truth. Then you start taking up those ideas, which clearly are present in Spinoza's text, but are also part of what used to be called the 
perennial philosophy or the perennial questions of philosophy. Mm -hmm. Today, there are any number of people working in a more or less Marxist or we could even say a communist direction that are incredibly influenced by Spinoza. And I'm not sure that I would ever count them as just historians of mm -hmm. philosophy, as if that's a bad thing. I don't think Etienne Balibar, for example, is a historian of philosophy. I think he's a philosopher who looks at the history of philosophy philosophically. Mm -hmm. And that's a difference. Like, what would the history of philosophy look like taught in a history department versus what does the history of philosophy look like taught in a philosophy department? Mm -hmm. And I think one difference that should be made is the history of philosophy can be taken up philosophically and not mm -hmm. just as a succession of one damn thing after another, but what does it mean to move from late medieval discussions about nominalism to realism to early modern discussions about the nature of the individual and its relation to other things. And here, individual could be both human and non-human. Mm -hmm. That's a way of taking up the history of philosophy, I think, philosophically, rather than having a neat story and I get high on my own supply. Mm -hmm. But don't you think it's the case that Again, this is part of the training that all of us got in continental philosophy. Like, I don't consider myself a historian of philosophy, despite the fact that every single one of my classes is organized basically according to the history of philosophy. But if I were to compare myself to some of my friends who are, say, analytic metaphysicians, I'm definitely a historian of philosophy, right? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, and like to them and to me, I, right. I would consider myself right. a historian of philosophy. I have this one friend, I mean, bless his heart, I love him and he's a great philosopher, but I'm pretty sure he thinks philosophy started in like 1905 or something <laughs> right. and, you know, just literally doesn't know, has never read anything prior to the 20th century. A history of philosophy is just not important to this guy at all. And maybe for some of the reasons that Sauer points out, mm -hmm. but that the history of philosophy is important to me does not make me a historian of philosophy. Mm -hmm. I would say that I would not call Derrida a historian of philosophy. But if you right. asked me to think of somebody who knows the history of philosophy better than almost anyone else, it would probably be somebody like Derrida. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was sure you were going to say Rick Lee. <laughs> <laughs> it was a close race. He got you by a nose. But I think that's just back to your point, Rick, is that because Derrida understood not only the practice of doing philosophy as necessarily historically informed – but also the reading of the history of philosophy as part of what doing philosophy is. Right, right. That is to say, treats the history philosophically. I think, you know, given my specialty in medieval philosophy, one of the reasons I would say I'm a historian of philosophy is because I have a lot of skills that are frankly not philosophical. I can read medieval manuscripts. I know about how books were produced. I read widely a number of figures that I'm sure none of you have ever heard of. <laughs> you know, like right now, I'm steeped in a text by Nicholas Bonetus. Yep, not heard of him. See? <laughs> and, you know, I don't think I want to say, oh, y'all should be reading Nicholas Bonetus. I mean, I think in a way you should. But part of my task is to figure out why it is that, for example, 
now that I said Nicholas Bonatus, this is going to... Okay, so if I'm trying to figure out why a later medieval philosopher says the things they do or uses a term in a specific way, then I have to do this kind of archival research to figure out, does this use of the term have a history and what does that history look like and what are the nuances in that history and so on? I don't take all of that work that I'm doing there to be philosophy, Mm -hmm. but the reason why I'm steeped in this text by Nicholas Bonatus is because it's a text about distinctions and differences, and I think that a lot of philosophers in the 20th century make certain assumptions about what difference is and how it operates that I think, frankly, are a little flat-footed. And had there been a little bit more reflection on other philosophers who have thought also very seriously about these questions, we might say some different things about, for example, what difference is, how it operates, and so on. Mm -hmm. You know, Rick, you said something in your comment there. You said, I do think that you should read, who is it? Nicholas Bonatus? (laughs) Nicholas Bonatus, yeah. Nicholas Bonatus. And I think we're kind of dancing around exactly that question. Like, I think we all think that people should know the history of philosophy. Right. And maybe I want to ask you guys if you could articulate that. Where's the ought there? Why ought people read the history of philosophy? I can offer three reasons, one of which is merely pragmatic, I think. The first reason is I think one ought to read the history of philosophy just so that one doesn't reinvent the wheel. Yeah. (laughs) This is one of the pitfalls of being a historian of philosophy is that you come to the position ultimately that there is nothing new under the sun. (laughs) And I don't think that's true, actually. And also, by the way, I'm not sure we should be focusing on novelty as a philosophical value. But I think just to not reinvent the wheel is very important. Secondly, I think the origin of various concepts, ideas, and arguments and their development within this rich sense of history that we've been talking about, the material history, social history, political history, and so on, that to chart that origin and development helps us to understand the ways in which ideas, concepts, and arguments might be linked to structures that we are otherwise struggling against. And then the third reason is, and I'm sorry, Jason, but I think I might rob a point you wanted to make, but it's a point you already made. I think there are some aspects of the history of philosophy that didn't get written into textbooks about the history of philosophy that are really worth going back and thinking through again. Mm-hmm. What about you, Jason? One of the odd things, speaking of reinventing the wheel, is that a lot of times teaching history of philosophy does feel like you're getting students to reinvent the wheel. And I sometimes say this to them. <laughs> they're going through arguments that have happened before, but I say to my students sometimes, you know, the thing about reinventing the wheel is, yeah, it's redundant, but hey, you invented the wheel. You know, there's a certain <laughs> way in which, you know, if you, as you go through and figure the stuff out for yourself, it is important for you to, to figure the stuff out for yourself, to go through and see some of these movements. Now, I'm going to go back to the same thing I said at the beginning, which is sort of Foucault's point that you have to understand what thought silently thinks and that it can think something different. That's, for me, part of the idea of the history of philosophy, to both recognize recognize the way in which our everyday concepts, as Gramsci says, come with a great deal of baggage. 
The history of philosophy offers us a way to make inventory of that baggage. It's like, oh, this comes from here. This comes from here. And to, as Rick was saying, to see some of the baggage the baggage has. Like, oh, this comes with a lot of racism. Maybe I don't want that so much anymore. I'm going to leave that behind. So by understanding where our thoughts come from, we can begin to think differently. But I also think that within learning the history of philosophy, there's always two things that are going on that I think are interesting. Lee, you mentioned the story we tell. Because if you pick up a survey history of philosophy book, it'll talk about these different philosophers in terms of, as we've been discussing, really their conclusions, right? Blank is an idealist. Blank is an empiricist. Blank is a liberal. Blank is whatever. And it'll give you kind of the currency of the realm of like the way these philosophers often talked about. Yeah. But if yeah. you talk to anyone who really reads that philosopher, they probably find that label incredibly infuriating. Like, oh my God, yeah. there's so much more going on than this supposed yeah. label. So there's a sort of weird duality into the history of philosophy that I think is very interesting. On the one hand, people should know this is what empiricism is. This is what some of the major kind of moves. But they should also know that every time those positions are being articulated, there's always so much more going on. And that part of the history of philosophy is constantly learning and unlearning the history. You're learning, in some sense, this narrative, but also recognizing that the narrative you're given doesn't contain the actual history that it supposedly contains. I mean, this is where we started. This is why progress is one narrative doesn't fit. I would say any other narrative doesn't fit either because there's more going on in every one of these texts than the narrative would allow. Before we get to your arguments, Lee, I want to add a fourth thing to the thing I said, <laughs> the three things I said before. That is that I think there is a way in which in every age, certain things go without saying, and therefore they're unsaid. Maybe this is part of the baggage that Jason was talking about. It's very difficult from the present to understand what our own baggage is. But we can come to a little bit of a clearer idea if we start reading the text of someone who inhabited a different world. And that, I think, is really important. But Lee, what about you? What are your arguments for engaging the history of philosophy? I mean, I have a short list. It's really only two, and it in some ways is a restatement of things that you've already said. But I agree with Jason. I think one reason that we ought to read the history of philosophy is so that we don't end up with this cartoony version of thinkers. Maybe this is also going back to the zoo example, right? Um, <laughs> that if I only take the surveyist's account of a figure, then I do get a kind of cartoony version of that figure. Just like if I go to the zoo and I only see the panda when it's sitting out there taking a nap and looking cute and I don't see it when it's you know like got diarrhea or when it's like being an <laughs> asshole or whatever you know and it's a much more complicated and messier story so I do think the only way that you can get that is to go back to the text themselves the other thing is what I said in the previous segment. We got to stop making the same mistakes. I mean, Rick said we don't want to reinvent the wheel, but we also don't want to make the same mistakes. <laughs> you know, we don't want to reinvent our worst selves. And this reminds me actually of a episode from last season where we interviewed Caleb Kane. He was the guy yeah. who fell down the bright wing YouTube rabbit hole. And one of the things that really struck me when we were talking to him was how he was describing sort of at the height of the Trump movement was the height of the energy he felt in this alt-right world. And then Charlottesville happened. And he said, you know, I didn't really believe that there were really Nazis out there. 
He's like, I saw them. But prior to that, I just didn't think that Nazis were real. And now he says, you know, now I know they're real and they're on my side. So I'm probably on the wrong side. Right. (laughs) But I thought and I've thought this a lot during the Trump years. How can people not see we're less than 100 years from these exact same discourses happening in the exact same way, where you have the rise of fascism, the rise of anti-Semitism, the rise of a certain oppressive patriarchal state. Anybody who's just familiar with the history of ideas in the early to mid 20th century must have known that all of this stuff was going to happen exactly as it did. And so there, to me, is the big punch, the big sell, the hard sell for the history of philosophy is that why would we want to keep making our worst mistakes over and over and over again? Well, guys, it looks like our bartender has flicked the lights and given us last call. But before we go, uh, Rick, any final parting thoughts on the history of philosophy? I think lying behind our entire discussion of the history of philosophy was really a discussion of what exactly is history? What does the word history mean in this phrase, the history of philosophy? And I think in many ways, we have been engaging as much the history of philosophy as we've been pushing back against a positivist notion of history itself, Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. one can't argue against someone like Sauer about whether the history of philosophy matters without arguing against the notion of history that underlies his argument, and to show that perhaps there is another sense of history. And if we take up this other sense of history, then perhaps the history of philosophy is not only important, but the most crucial aspect of philosophy itself. Nice hard sell there, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of hard sells, listeners, if you want to help support this podcast, you can go over and visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. It really does help us out a lot if you could sign up for one of our patron levels there, and we will definitely give you a shout out here on the podcast when you do. But with that said, we need a cab because, dead joke, we're history. <laughs> <laughs> Is it still a dad joke if you announced that it's a dad joke before? <laughs> How long have you been sitting on that? How long have you been sitting About on that? About 47 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, for that joke, the cab's on me. (laughs) All right, catch you guys next time.